Hi, everyone. Welcome to Childcare Inspirations, inspiring early childhood educators and providers through laughter, learning, and connection. I'm Tina Gears, owner of Inspired Minds ECC, and I'm here today with Tanya Johnson, the co-founder, psychologist, instructor, and consultant. She has a whole bunch of different titles to her for the Institute of Child Psychology. Hi, Tanya. Hi, Tina. Thank you for having me. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your uh, the Institute and about your story, because we all like to share our stories. So I'd like to hear a little bit about yours. Yeah. So uh Tammy is my business partner. Tammy and I both started off in private practice in Edmonton. We're both psychologists. Um, and we both had we both realized that we had a shared dream where although we the the work in the office is really, really important and the work that play therapists, we're both play therapists do individually with kids is also super important. Um, we both had a dream where we basically wanted to take the tools out of the office and really start to empower a child's village. So we wanted to empower more parents, teachers, daycare providers, caregivers, early childhood educators, occupational therapists. We said, why don't we take these tools, which are often held, unfortunately, almost like a secret. So when you come in for your therapy session and we're paying per session, each session, I'm going to give you a few tools and then you're going to come back next session and we're going to do it again. We didn't want to keep it so secretive and we said let's actually start talking to people let's get rooms full of people so this is when we we're doing it live pre-covid but let's get rooms full of people and actually start talking and having these incredible conversations so tammy and i both started in edmonton and then we started traveling around canada and then we went to south africa we went to the states Wow. Realize that there, there's it's a, it's such a huge conversation right now. How do we actually empower kids to live their best life? And then we gradually moved online, and now obviously with COVID, we're entirely online at the moment. Um, but yeah, we just we we wanted to be a part of the village. We didn't want it to be so secretive and so exclusive to those families that had the resources to come to the office to be able to work with us. I think that's great because I've also noticed like growing up. So in the eighties, it was like going to in the nineties. If you went to a psychologist, Oh, you were messed up, right? Something was wrong. Mm -hmm. And I know we were talking before, but we both have experience working in Taiwan. And that was the first time I was told when I moved to Taiwan as an educator, get yourself a psychologist mm -hmm. because it's going to help with the transition. You're going to go through a lot of things you've never experienced in Canada. And I think, you know, and I did, and it was extremely helpful. And it wasn't something that something was wrong to me. So when I told people, yeah, I go to psychology, you know, sessions about once every two weeks, they're mm -hmm. like, why, what's wrong? I'm like, nothing. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. I get to kind of spew everything out, <laughs> everything that's stressing me, all the positives, all the negatives, and they gave me strategies, but there was the stigma to it. And yep. I think by bringing it out open into the public, and I love that idea of being part of the village, because that's a big saying in early childhood, is it takes a village to raise a child, mm -hmm. is that now it's not that secretive component, there's nothing wrong, it's amazing information, like that's my geekiness is the psychology part of early childhood education. Mm -hmm. um, 
and bringing that to the forefront. And I think taking off that stigma of it is secretive, that there's something wrong if you go to sessions, there's something wrong if you consult. And no, it's just, there's different strategies. It's a different perspective of how to look at things, a different understanding, a knowledge base. And I thought for me, it was an outside perspective, like someone that's not directly attached that can see things probably a little bit better than I can, especially when you're going through it. And I think for early childhood educators, they need to be aware of the psychology behind what we do, not just only what we are taught in early childhood courses. I mean, we talk about some of the great um, psychologists that impacted early childhood, but not in depth. Mm -hmm. Like when I, well, this is when I went to school um, is we don't talk about upstairs brain, downstairs brain. I mean, there is none of that neurological aspect. It might be touched on briefly, but it doesn't go in depth. And so by taking some psychology courses and by taking your sessions and kind of expanding my reading, I've learned a lot more about the psychology of children. And man, I think, I think that the government should allow us to take those courses <laughs> for the PD funding. I mean, it's amazing what you learn. And to add that to our knowledge and experiences, ECEs, ultimately helps impact how we support children, how we support the families, and letting them know it's just, you know what, it's okay. It's, this is part of growing up. Okay. You know, that um, obviously I'm, I'm biased in this area, but to me, the, particularly those early childhood years, the greatest learning for our children during those years is social emotional learning. And mm-hmm. we talk about either seeing a psychologist or consulting or, or watching a course that's psychology based. Um, to me, that's just really putting more tools in your toolbox to go, how do I help this child to be the very best version of themselves? I have two little girls. Uh, they're two and four years old. Um, and you know, as soon as they're ready, probably the four, the four year old, I will connect her with a play therapist. That's not me because I, again, it's a bias, but I believe that everybody should have somebody to speak to who's not mom or dad. Yeah, absolutely. I I absolutely agree. And I love that play psychology and play therapists are coming more and more, um, open and available. Because early childhood, we are all about the importance of play mm-hmm. and kind of getting around that dichotomy of play isn't learning, that learning and play are different when they're actually combined in the early years. And even and that's nice since really 1995, there's been a lot of neuro research behind it. Yep. And now that we can test on humans <laughs> instead of rats and chimpanzees and stuff. So we've come a long way in terms of what we understand in development Agreed. Agreed. You know, I, um, for our early childhood educators, I actually, I strongly, strongly, strongly believe that, um, the psychology component should, you know, again, a bias here, but should be 70 to 80% of what we learn as early childhood educators, because that work that you're doing with our little ones is so incredibly important and sets the foundation for the rest of their life in terms of mental health. And absolutely. And it's, um, it's not, early childhood education isn't when you hear the term education you think in school systems like that adult directed children sitting at desks and I remember teaching in Taiwan and I actually when I went for an interview at one of the schools and it was a military-based school 
and they had desks set up for my two-year-old. And I'm like looking around going, what is happening here? <laughs> and I moved all these desks out of the way and I created this whole play-based curriculum for a sample and it literally blew their mind. Yep. They were like, wow, uh, we didn't know you could teach like that. Mm -hmm. Is that still education? I went, this is the way that we educate young children. 100%. And they're like, well, we're going to have to sit down with the parents. and You're going to have to talk to the parents about how we're doing this. They're like, it was really interesting. But that play concept is getting a better reputation as to the importance it has in early childhood development. Mm -hmm. So knowing that there's the therapy and there's the psychology behind it is just even better. So much. Yeah. And we get that as play therapists too sometimes. So there's questions of, um, you know, in order to become a play therapist, we study it after our degree. So it's a specialization and we'll, we'll have parents come in and say, what are we doing here? Is this not just play and just play what we see in the play therapy room? Obviously we're trained to watch what toys kids are picking out, what play sequences they engage in. That's part of our training. Um, but really when a child is in the play therapy room with us, they're working through a number of different things. Yeah. And I think right now, especially, um, play is going to help a lot of children deal with a lot of um, feelings, mm -hmm. a lot of anxiety. And I know this is kind of ties into our, our conversation today is childhood anxiety. Um, but it's using play as the foundation is going to really help children manage anxiety and deal with all these feelings and help with self-regulation and everything, those core foundational skills in social emotional learning. hundred percent, a hundred percent. And when, when our kids don't play enough, we actually do, we see it. We see, well, I spoke about those foundational blocks earlier. Um, when our kiddos are not playing right from a young age, we see these big gaps later on developmentally because they don't have those tools that are developed through play. And I have first actually firsthand experience with this. So when I was teaching grade three, um, I noticed the difference at the beginning, not so much, right? I could see those ones that learned by rote learning. They still got a lot of the concepts, but by the end of grade three, so around that eight year mark, is I can definitely tell the difference of those children that went to a play-based early childhood environment and didn't learn by rote and had those foundations and those that didn't because mm -hmm. like, they weren't able to decontextualize. They weren't able to do a lot of the behind the scenes. They would memorize things, but they didn't understand why. And they weren't as engaged. They were more stressed out. I mean, and I dealt in my grade three class um, with children with difficult and challenging behaviors. Like I had a class specifically with mm -hmm. eight children who had what, according to Taiwanese society, difficult and challenging behaviors. And yes, there was a couple that were very challenging. And I was like, uh, great, because that was me when I was growing up. <laughs> I love it. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. But yeah, I have for that firsthand experience of, yeah, there is a difference. There's absolutely. So we want to look at where the children are now in terms of early childhood, but the impact also that it has later on. And not only their development, but academics. A lot of parents, a lot of educators, teachers are concerned, well, what about the academics? Those are ingrained in the play. It's that intrinsic learning, that curiosity. Children are naturally curious. They naturally want to explore. That's ingrained. You don't have to pile it on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, the, this space, as we talk about children just naturally learning through play, um, our favorite type of play at the Institute is actually non-directed play because that's where a child mm -hmm. 
goes, oh, this is where I'm trying to develop mastery or I'm trying to work through a fear here by engaging in this play sequence again and again so I can work out what's actually happening here. Um, and so there is, there's definitely space for directed play, particularly when we're trying to teach a skill, but there is so much value in that non-directed play too. And I, um, I know sometimes for professionals, um, and it's, it's true too with beginning play therapists, is that sometimes I think the concern is when, when I need to talk to parents, how do I explain what we're doing? That we're not yeah. just playing, or they're not just coming to therapy to play in an expensive way. So, you know, I think part of it too is having that language to say, actually, when we play, these are the skills that are being developed. And this is um, some of the psychological components that we're looking at right now. So I think sometimes really having the background, which is some of those courses that you spoke about earlier, having the background in it so that you can actually speak to it is part, is, is half of the, the struggle. So it's not just, mm -hmm. oh, I need something so that the parents think I'm doing something. Actually, there's so much happening in those play moments with children. Absolutely. And that's why uh, I think it's kind of right now, especially with children going back to school, with all the stresses that are impacting. I know a lot of uh, childcare operators and directors that I have spoken with in the last couple of weeks, they're starting to fill up their spaces um, anywhere up to 80% capacity right now. Some are right now have a waiting list. So they're back to what it's not like the normal, but they're adapting to the new normal and they're noticing differences in children's behaviors. And I've always said like, when we go back to, you know, the regular school uh, system again, and when we get back up to those capacities, don't worry about, your theme and don't worry about what they're learning just focus on that social emotional because we've gone through a collective traumatic experience right now children's worlds have been turned upside down where mm -hmm. okay would well, they used to go out and meet with their friends and now they can't and they can't see grandma and grandpa as much and they can't you know go outside and play as much so there's been all this upheaval in their life and a lot of the educators um, that i've spoken with have said their play has changed They've seen behaviors that they didn't before. Mm -hmm. And I think by having an understanding of what's happening and the psychology behind it and having that base information allows us to better support the children. Mm -hmm. So do you think a question for you here is those behaviors that these educators are noticing in the classrooms. And even when I go to a program that I'm helping out right now, yeah, they're they're noticing a lot of behaviors in the classroom and the educators are struggling with it. Um, do you think some of that stemmed from anxiety? Like how, when can you start noticing anxiety in children? Is that anxiety or what, what do you think that might, I know there's not one answer, but. Yeah. Um, got so much to say to all of that. Um, Go for it. <laughs> so, um, Dr. Gordon Neufeld is one of our leading attachment um, a psychologist and he's done beautiful work on the first six years and how important attachment is during those first six years of development at each stage within those six years each each year of life we focus on attaching to people differently so as an example in our first year we're attached through senses so it's all sensory it's being held by your primary caregiver the smell the, the touch of them so it's all sensory and then uh, in our second year, it's about sameness, so being like. So um, a little one who is maybe with mom and mom drinks tea, they want to drink tea like mom. So being like, 
Okay. So we go through those, those six years of attachment. When there is a disruption in a child's life. So something like COVID is an example. So they're used to maybe going into um, a school or a program or having more social outlets. When there's an interruption in those first six years, we can see that for some kids, that's where we'll start to see the first signs of anxiety. So, you know, it's all about likeness and then there's an interruption in the family, it's highly likely that that child is going to have some anxiety around basically who am I like. So it's, it's based on the same step in attachment that they're working on. So we can see it two, three, four, five, six. So we think about our little ones. Um, age five is about love. So very often our children fall deeply in love with their teacher, with their with their best friend so suddenly we take away that teacher or we take away that best friend they don't have the same access and we see anxiety start to emerge there but if for example at, at age five that child is really really struggling uh, what we need to do then is go okay this child is struggling with connection they're struggling with love what do we do here so we work on that child just working on those love connections so being connected to the teacher, being connected to the friend. So my argument here, Tina, is that in those first six years, we do see anxiety, but a lot of it has to do with belonging and different stages of belonging. So as I already mentioned, it's senses, it's sameness. As we move through those first six years and we hit all of those developmental milestones, we need to make sure that that child is meeting those milestones. And when they're not, we work on the, the milestones that they might've missed. So we'll see three-year-olds struggling with very different things to a five-year-old versus a six-year-old. Okay, so you just taught me something new about the six years of attachment. Mm -hmm. So can we just touch briefly on that for the listeners here? You said the first year is about sensory. The first year is sensory. Then the, it goes... the second year is sameness. Um, just hold on. I just, I've just got to write, write, out the, write out the first six years. Give me a second. Oh, yeah, no, that's because I was like, oh, I like this because this gives us some more information about, okay, how can we, how can we make that connection? How can we support them? And it's going to be different. I love that you touch on it. It's going to be different according to how old they are. Does development, like developmental readiness impact that as well? Uh, yes, absolutely. So it's not chronological age. Ah, okay. Looking at developmental age here, which we know is going to be different for our different kiddos. And if you give me one second. See, that's, this is See, this is what I love about doing these things and, and chatting with people from different parts of the field. And I, I'm going to use, do you mind if I use that like different parts of the village? Yes. I thought that was awesome. So different um, parts of the village or different homes in the village. And, you know, we had talked with uh, just previously with some occupational therapists. We've talked with people who are in early childhood specialists. And so coming from psychology, we, I learned like different things all the time. That's so neat. So I think this is really important for some educators to learn and check out. By the way, um, everyone, Gordon Neufeld, he, the Institute is from BC. Yes. And so check out, it's a local, you know, Canadian resource here, everyone. Woohoo. That's good. Mm -hmm. And if you pull up uh, Neufeld Institute, so just Google Neufeld Institute, yeah. um, they've got lots of really great online courses as well. Okay. Oh, so I'm 
I'm getting ready to enroll in those after I'm done my current courses. I'm going to head over to the Newfell Institute and try those ones there. Okay. So Tina, let's go through those first six years. Okay. Our first year is uh, of life is senses. So like I said, all sensory. Our second year of life is sameness. So being like, so it's whoever that primary, whoever that child has a lot of connection with, a lot of contact with, they want to be like. So that's the attachment stage, right? In our third year of life, it's belonging and loyalty. So in that third year of life, we'll often see kids drawing pictures of family, as an example. Yeah. My family or... Um, I remember with my little one going over and over again, this is mama, this is dada, this is baby sister, this is me. So who is my family? So there's lots of that sort of work. If they're in um, some sort of classroom that might be smaller, there might also be a lot of, this is my class. So Peter's in my class, John's in my class, Casejo's um, in my class, whatever it might be, really going over my people. So that's a, a very strong focus in that third year. In a fourth year of life, it's significance. So am I important? Um, and so we'll get kids in this year of life, we get them asking a lot, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Mm. So we learn a lot from kids. In our fifth year of life, it's about love. So um, as I said, that's where we fall deeply in love with our kindergarten teacher. It's where we fall in love with our puppy. Um, it's all about love. Lots of hearts on pages. That's what's happening in that fifth year. And in our sixth year of life, it's about being known. So um, if I'm a little bit different, do you still accept me? So my oh. family loves hockey, um, but I, I, think I, I really enjoy um, dancing. Is that okay? So it's about oh. when I if I'm a little bit different, how do I actually fit into this? And am I still fully accepted? So those are the first six stages. So what I want to do with you now, since we are talking about anxiety, is what happens in each of those six stages when um, there is a disruption? So a disruption can be anything. It could be a pandemic. It could be a highly acrimonious divorce. It could be a move that the child finds traumatizing, basically a disruption to what they know. So in that first year of life, if there is a disruption, we see that children start to have a lot of anxiety. And so we won't necessarily see it in that first year, but let's say there's a, a big disruption in their life in that first year. Later on, we might see that there's anxiety about not being close or not being near to their primary caregiver. So we might see that in the first year. In that second year of life, if there's a disruption, there might be anxiety around feeling different. So I'm not the same as everybody. I'm not as good as everybody. I am different to my peers. I'm not like, basically. In that third year of life, it can be around not belonging. So who are my people? I don't have my people. In the fourth year of life, it can be around not feeling important. Nobody actually loving me or needing me or wanting me. Um, in that fifth year of life, it's about conditional love. So I'm only loved if, and if I'm not a specific way, then I'm not loved. And in sixth year of life, it can be around not being accepted. And what's incredible here is that we can have a 40-year-old man um, who may have anxiety around um, 
not feeling important. So, and that comes out in his relationships. And we can actually look back and go, was there something that happened in that third year of childhood to create disruption? And this is an anxiety that you've carried with you throughout that's impacted all of your relationships since. Um, so not always, it's not always as clear cut. It would be beautiful if it was. It's not always as clear cut, but we will see that people actually carry some of these childhood wounds all the way through. So what happens if we go, whoa, okay, Tanya, I'm just thinking right now and um, my child's four and COVID happened and it does feel like there's a whole lot of questions around, it, around him feeling as if he's not wanted or he's not important. What do I do now? And so what we do is even if your child is, let's say six, and we recognize that at four, there were some issues we start at four. So we start at stage four and we really work on stage four. And then once we feel as if we have importance worked out or significance worked out, then we do stage five. Then we work on love and then we work on stage six. So even if we have that 40 year old gentleman come in and he's got issues around stage two, then we work on stage two, then we work on stage three, four, five, um, so it, it's fascinating to look at, particularly if our little ones are little right now, to go, has there been a disruption and are they actually in fact struggling with one of these issues? So it won't be every child that will struggle and they might struggle differently depending on the temperament of the child, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So something, so that one thing I want to point, like ask about, I guess, is so if a child's that sense of belonging. So if all of a child, suddenly a child's best friend is not in childcare, would that fall under that three-year-old? And all of a sudden they're like really upset because their friend is not there and it just blows their whole day or their whole week, you know, especially if they're gone for 10 days. <laughs> is, is that what we might see as a disturbance and that change in behaviors possibly? Yeah, you know, absolutely. So that, that would be a disruption, particularly if it's a very, very, very close friend. Yeah. Um, and for some kids, we'll just, you know, temperament's different. And um, we'll talk about foundational blocks in a second. Some kids just, temperament, as, as we said, temperament is a little bit different. So with some kids, we'll see, okay, it's going to impact my week. And I'll tell you what we do for the kids who it impacts their week. So that's also quite big. Some kids is going to impact the week. And other kids will actually see, um, that it really shakes their entire foundation and it takes much longer for us to get back on track. So with those kids, when we go, okay, this is all about longing, belonging, whether it's the week or whether it's the semester or whether it's the year, what we really need to do then is as the um, caregivers in a child's life is dial up that child's sense of belonging. So we dial up connection with that child at home mom and dad, we say, okay, let's really make sure that we have playtime with our kids that's present, phones are down, TV's off, dial up and really work on the child's sense of belonging so we can buffer and create some of that resiliency for that child. Uh, yeah, I can't help but think about my childhood when we talk about this, because a lot of times when we're thinking about things, if we relate it to our experiences and how it has impacted, I think my parents were ahead of the time I always remember my parents being there always. I mean, we played constantly. There's so much connection. And I think my mom was uh, specifically, my mom was really in tune with all this, even though she didn't know any of it. Cause I talk to her about it now and I'm like, mom, you did all this. 
Yeah. You, you always made sure we felt loved and, and had that play time with them. And so it just makes me think about, wow, my own childhood, how my personal upbringing, and then of course I compare it to my husband who had a different type of upbringing. I'm not saying he wasn't loved. It's just more, um, more adult directed than mm-hmm. mine was. And yeah, you can definitely see the differences and how, you know, I guess insecurities that we both have now as adults and now it makes me think, okay, what, what disturbances did I have in a childhood that might've affected that <laughs> because I'm a perfectionist and I had to really figure it wasn't until my mid twenties, actually when I was in Taiwan that I figured out why I was like this. I'm like, why am I so upset if I don't get perfection? Why am I so upset when someone isn't happy with everything I do. Like, what is it? And I went back to my childhood and found out when that was. And I was like, wow, that had a huge impact on my life. Mm -hmm. And I, to this day, am still a perfectionist. Um, I'm getting better at it and accepting I don't have to get a hundred, you know, (laughs) I can, I can, but it's, it does cause anxiety, especially for things that I can't implement. And that definitely does give me anxiety and I'm a, and then I procrastinate. Mm -hmm. So everything that's happened in the childhood will affect long-term outcomes. Absolutely. And you know, um, another favorite of us, doc, of ours at the Institute, Dr. Siegel. Dr. Siegel has, a wonderful, yeah, has a wonderful piece of work that says, um, it's not your childhood that is going to predict the type of adult you will be um, or the type of role model that you'll be to a child one day. So it's not whether you came from the picket fence and the, the perfect childhood or whether you had multiple traumas that's going to determine the type of parent or teacher you will be one day. It's actually the degree of reflection that you've done around your childhood. So we can have somebody who says to me, you know, as a therapist, I see some adults. Um, I can have a client that says to me, Tanya, when I look back at my childhood, there was maybe a couple of disruptions here or there, but there were, it really wasn't much. That person, if there's been no reflection or no work around their staff or where some of their behaviors come from, is probably going to be a harder, have a harder time being a role model to a child than somebody who's been through multiple traumas in their childhood, but has actually taken the time to do the work and reflect on how it impacts them as an adult. So it's not about your childhood events. It's about the degree of reflection you've done around your childhood that will predict the type of quality and caregiving that you can give to a child. And I think that's really difficult for a lot of us adults is to reflect mm-hmm. and figure out, okay, where does all like all the positive things and all the things that you're working on and everything. It's difficult to reflect for a lot of us. And I know some people who are in their fifties and they still will not reflect at all. They're like, nope, nope, nope. Absolutely. And I can absolutely see that. And I think that's why we want to help these children in these early years. And I love this idea of that, like, the six years of attachment and how when we notice something to go back to the stage that represents that Mm -hmm. where that that deficient that disruption was yeah and you know some people um, are going to look at this and go it doesn't make sense for me this doesn't work for me and that's totally okay it's this isn't like a a foolproof plan here Um, but it's beautiful, like you said, just to have another tool to go, is there something here? Isn't there something here? And for some people, there might be those aha moments where they go, oh, I really have to work on and reflect on my sense of belonging and how I connect with others because of these the stuff that might have happened in my childhood. So it's not it's not a foolproof plan, but it's another tool to go, hold on, does any of this actually represent me? 
Yeah, and I use the same analogy as what's in your tool belt? Mm-hmm. What's in your tool belt? Pull it out, try something out, um, give it time too. When you're trying to figure out and reflect and try a new strategy, instead of just trying it once and saying, oh, no, it didn't work. Well, maybe it didn't work in that moment for various reasons. Don't give up, like keep going, keep trying different avenues. And if it doesn't work after a few attempts, then okay, let's try something else. Totally, totally. You know, Tina, some, something that we always say as we talk about the adults in a child's world, something we always say at the Institute is, um, unfortunately here in Canada, we still there's still not great coverage when it comes to psychological services. Uh, you know, I know even we've got coverage through Blue Cross and I, I think it's 500 a year, which is ridiculous when you think that a, a, a session right now is 200 a session. It's like, yeah, I can have two and a half sessions. That's going to be special. Um, but something that Tammy and I always say is if you only have a certain amount of coverage, the adult goes first, then the child. And that is coming from registered play therapists. Our specialization is in children. But we know that it's very hard to create change for that child if the adult is struggling. So that child can come in week after week after week and we can work on that non-directed play and then eventually through non-directed play we move to like more skill-based things so we can really help the child with their anxiety but that child is spending 50 minutes with us once a week and then going home to a household where mom is anxious dad is anxious their teacher is anxious i can tell you right now we're going to see very little shift if i can work on mom really looking at her anxiety or dad really looking at the anxiety or an educator really looking at how their anxiety comes across the change is going to be far greater. So first the adults, then the child. This is a good tip for everyone who's listening in today is uh, look at yourself. Look mm-hmm. at yourself and it don't judge yourself. Try and avoid self-judgment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I fully embrace that. Yes, I have anxiety. Yes, you know, for the first time in my life, I went through a depressive state with this COVID thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so look at your inner reflection, do some grounding, do some, um, do some exercise. Like I make, I try and make sure I get outside because one of my strategies that I was taught is get outside in nature because I really connect with nature. So I will literally hug a tree and my husband thinks I'm nuts when I do it. But I'm like, come hug the tree with me. He's like, I'm not hugging a tree. Uh But for me, it works. And so when I'm feeling anxious and I'm stressed out, yeah, going on a walk does an amazing job and helping me recalibrate and we have to figure out that what is that uh, as an educator what is that for you and are we going into the classrooms with a bunch of anxiety and is that energy being given off into the children totally 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 um so much in what you what you just said there you know as you talk about going outside there's actually beautiful science behind that that Mm -hmm. shows when um, we shift temperatures, it changes our emotional state. So when we're hot inside and we're feeling anxious, if we stay in that same temperature, we're likely to keep feeling anxious. But if we shift temperatures, which is beautiful when we live in Alberta, when we yes. shift temperatures, it actually changes emotional states. So that's happening. Nature within itself. Yeah, nature within itself is healing. And then when we walk, we're also more likely to actually be breathing deeply, which helps to settle that nervous system. So there's beautiful things that happen when we actually step outside. Um, and then I often say to people too, like if you are inside with a child and you can't get outside, 
move, the last thing you want to be doing is sitting down because that energy stays stagnant and take off your sweater, change your bodily temperature because again, it changes emotional states. All right. There we go. Another new one for me, the temperature. So that's actually, yeah, because when I'm hot or I went camping and I was like damp in the mountain, middle of the mountains in fall, I was damp and cold and I, you know, you just feel icky. <laughs> There's my, my toddler terms. It's icky. Yep. And I stay in that as long as I'm that, as I'm feeling that external influence on me, that temperature, that, and even when I'm really hot, like my husband likes the saunas. I hate the saunas. It's too hot. And I can only last so long or I, I start getting cranky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. so, yeah, look at your temperatures in your room. hundred percent. And see, okay, let's try and change it. And it's very uh, popular in early education. We all, well, many of us know that going outside and movement is critical. Like one of the first steps you should do, if you notice the behaviors in your classroom is starting to get a little bit more chaotic and not a nice chaos, but a crazy chaos is to get them moving, get them engaged in a physical movement activity and get them outside. Yeah. And you so, saw yeah. for us too, not just for our kids, you know, so yeah. often let's get them moving, but it's actually for us too. Okay. This is so fun. I'm loving this. <laughs> I'm like a little kid in a candy store. Every time I talk about this geeky stuff, I'm like, yay. <laughs> All right. So what, what else kind of tips can you tell us for helping children with anxiety? We know first, okay, first that we all are going to look at ourselves. We're going to check out kind of our environment. Mm-hmm. Um, what else might we notice? Yeah. So, I mean, when we're talking about uh, some of those regressive behaviors that we, um, you know, you said some early childhood educators have reported to you that they're seeing new behaviors mm-hmm. and start to go to a new normal is really what our kids are needing is relationships. So if, when they come into their class, so first you do your own work and then knowing that many of our kids are uncertain. We're uncertain. Of course, they're uncertain right now. They're picking up on that energy, even if they don't have the words for it yet. They need to be walking into a classroom where their classroom is a safe oasis. There needs to be a very, 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 very strong emphasis on relationship. When a child, uh, we won't go too, too deep into the neurological stuff today, but when a child is stressed, they're unable to learn. So our first focus is how do we calm that stress response so that their brain is fully online so that they actually can learn from us. So in all of our classrooms right now, I would say there needs to be a focus on relationship and safety. We need to be doing things like soft starts to the day, soft starts to the end of the day. Those things signify to a child, this is a safe place where you can come and relax. Um, oh, hold on. I'm going to interrupt you quickly. A soft start. Mm-hmm. That's not a term I hear often in early childcare. Can you explain that soft start? What is yeah. that? So a soft start will be um, obviously a, a new normal carpet time, but having children sit, um, I believe as children get, as children progress, we read them developmentally appropriate books around mental health. So worries or um Maybe it's feeling sad, but I believe that a mental health book should be read every single day to children, every single day, so that we can actually normalize it. It's the same as, you know, maybe breaking your arm or spraining your wrist. It's, sometimes we feel sad, so we just we have this whole new generation where it's normalized. So reading to them, doing yoga, doing mindfulness exercises, just 
starting slowly, not high energy. So a slow start to the day. And then as we finish our day, also some sort of ritualized activity that says we're bringing today to a closed. Um, there's a whole school within psychology right now that's really merging around ritual and the importance of ritual signifying this is what the space is about. Oh, thank you for clarifying that because I know some, some of us will be like, what's that mean? <laughs> All right, so now, sorry for the interruption, go back. Yeah, so soft start, relationship, play all need to be huge uh, and then you know that that social emotional learning for our kids i think for so many of our children they're struggling with that now so we haven't been perhaps around other kids for a while um there's a whole lot of new components that children are dealing with maybe not within the classroom but outside the classroom where it comes to perhaps seeing more people in masks as an example so really teaching kids about how we read and understand bodies doing a lot of social emotional activities with children so right now and here comes the psychologist in me really bolstering that part of the learning so if i was in a classroom i would be doing relationship play social emotional learning that's where my entire focus would be right now yeah and that's what i'm trying to advocate for as well is right now our focus is on something a little different and i'm sorry but i even believe and this is a personal perspective even in the school systems i know a lot of parents are like oh my child's missing out they're going to fall behind we have that we have to address the social emotional first for all children in kindergarten preschool grade seven eight nine everyone like all children deserve that Absolutely. that sense of connection 100%. and they cannot learn why they don't feel safe so first yeah. work on that and then the rest will follow more easily but if we jump right into those academics and the fear of what they might have missed i can guarantee you that that learning won't be as integrated unless they actually feel safe absolutely agree on that one yeah it's just when we try and Oh, we just want to like up here. Oh, we just want to get back to normal. This is a new normal, okay. right? It's more important for us right now to focus on the child and where they are and how they're feeling than worry about them writing their names or achieving, you know, some math skills or something that will come and it will be more important in their life when they have a sense of safety and security in the environment that they're in. 100%. Absolutely. Um, you know, and we talk about the, that focus on the child and really slowing things down. I think that the, the last I would add to some of those tips is right now, there also needs to be a really strong focus on simplifying. So right now, the last thing that our kids need are hectic schedules that are changing every 30 minutes with walls that are covered in a hundred different posters and colors their nervous systems on overload as are ours as is societies right now. What these children desperately need is calmness, simplification, and quietness in order to actually thrive. Yeah. As those that might uh, know me, I always say, we need to woosah. I love it. Yeah. We need to woosah. We need to omnitofo. <laughs> we need to, you know, find that quiet and peacefulness within us and create that environment for the children and that's what early childhood educators that's what we do we create an environment where children can thrive instead of just survive or get by like we don't want children just to get by and okay just deal with them until they're off to the next teacher or the next grade we want to make sure that when they're in our care that they have an environment that supports them in all areas of development they have this uh, uh, 
holistic approach to de development. And if right now they need more social emotional, guess what? That's what we provide. We're going to provide that calmness. Um, you, when you were saying about the, um, the soft starts and soft ends, it helped me reflect um, when I was came back to Canada to teach. My preschool class, we ended up, because we did this in Taiwan, every day we did that soft start. And I, I didn't know that way. That's what it was called, but I did that back in Canada and I went with my co-teacher. I'm like, do you mind if we try this out? And we did yoga every morning. Mm -hmm. So they knew when Miss Tina came in, you know, I, my start was nine o'clock and I would come in usually a little bit early and they'd be like, oh, they'd be taking off their shoes. Yes. I let them take off their shoes in the classroom. <laughs> they had a little bin. They had to, I know some people get so upset oh don't take and I know it, sometimes it was my licensing officer that said oh they should be wearing their shoes we're doing yoga you cannot do yoga in your runners when they're pretty new black shoes right <laughs> or pink shoes so they would come in and I would let them select the music so they had the the rain the forest music the ocean music or the piano music mm -hmm. and they got to chat uh, pick which music they want to listen to and we would do it anywhere, you know, children were free to come and go as they want. We did it anywhere between five minutes and sometimes lasted up to 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. So we mm -hmm. always started that day with that. And I noticed the children that struggled with behaviors, they were always the ones to participate in that. Yeah. And as we started doing that, those behaviors throughout the day decreased in severity and frequency. Absolutely. And yeah. then at the end of the day, I did a story time. Love it. And a quiet story time. Right. Not something that's very animated like I normally am. <laughs> I had to like saw myself and say, no, this is the end of the day. And I even had parents come in um, and I'd be like, hey, you want to read a story with the children? And they would sit down with the children and read a story with them. So mm. it made me think, oh, wow, I was doing that. Mm. Not all the time did I do that. Not in every classroom. I'm by far not a perfect teacher. Yeah. But I saw the benefits of doing this and that when parents would say at the end of the day when their children went home and we did that soft close, they're like, they talked way more. They told us more about it. You know, that transition home, the car ride home was fabulous. And the days that they weren't, that we did something really high active, they were like, oh my goodness, what did you guys do today? Because they were like, wouldn't sleep and they were bouncing off the walls and it was just chaos when we came home. Yeah. Amazing. I absolutely love it. I absolutely, I mean, there you've got filling our children's cups and also ritual and relationship. So we're, we're hitting all of those right on the head there. Yeah, and when I didn't know what I was doing, yay. <laughs> but I guess like it goes back to like growing up myself is that that was something that we did. I was going to say like, you know, you, you said earlier that your mom, um, or your parents were just there um, and yeah. they just knew it. So I think very often this is we know it we have it already we don't need you know it says me who, who is a parenting resource but we don't need 600 parenting resources very often it's just being able to quieten the noise and going what do I really believe in what do I know my child needs and then following that but somewhere along the way we've lost our way and we've really started to question and hesitate and say I don't I don't know what children need when really I do believe that when we're able to quieten everything, we do know what our kids need. Yeah, absolutely. I say I was a accidental educator mm -hmm. because I never thought you asked me as a teenager, would I ever be a teacher? And I'd be like, no, mm -hmm. why would I do that? And I remember taking a test in high school about what is your career choice? And no matter what I answered on that stupid thing, it said psychologist, 
social worker, teacher. And I'm like, no, I want to be CEO of a company. I want to be an architect. I want like all these high profile jobs. And I got so mad after the third time of it saying, yes, you're going to be a psychologist or social worker, teacher. I'm like, oh, this is stupid. This is broken. (laughs) And now, you know, I tried the high profile job avenue in architecture. And I was like, nope, this is being an educator is where I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is my calling. This is this is my happy space. This is what calms me. This is what excites me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think educators, we need to touch back into that is the why behind why we're here. Absolutely. Especially where at times that everyone, I think many people are going through anxiety for different reasons. Um, and even times that are pre-COVID or after we figure everything out post-COVID, we're going to still experience anxiety. Mm-hmm. Our children are still going to experience anxiety. I mean, first day of uh, childcare for a lot of children is extreme anxiety. Um, trans- uh, separation anxiety is huge. Mm-hmm. So how can we support these children? What can we do? Being that calm ourselves will be that starting point for the children. Absolutely. And I, you know, Tina, I think when we're, as we talk about taking space and going back to that, why am I doing what I do? I think when we live a rushed lives ourselves, so I'm t- I talk, when I talk about simplifying, it's really hard to stop and hear the answer through the noise. Um, and even in our own, when, you know, there's, um, there's been struggles related to COVID, just like all families. But I think some of the good that's come from it is that some of that static has disappeared a little bit. So we're not rushing to ballet and swimming and this and that. It's starting to increase a little bit. But suddenly there's a little bit more space where I can go, hold on, who am I and what's important to me? And I I hope for all of our early childhood educators that they can sit down and go, what do I want? Why am I here? It's not just what I do, but what is the underneath? What are the roots for why I am in these children's lives? Yeah, absolutely. Get back down to your roots, your grassroots of why you are here. Lovely. I think that's a great way to end the podcast today. I think we could probably keep talking about this. I could get all geeky and talk about, you know, the flipping of the lid and how that all happens. Um, But we're going to leave that for your wonderful, wonderful online conference that's coming up. So the Institute of Child Psychology, everyone, is having an online conference. And I'm pretty excited about this. So Tanya, can you tell us about that? I'm going to give you time to give a little shout out. Yeah, absolutely. So it's November 20th to the 22nd. We're super excited. We've spoken about Dr. Siegel a couple of times today. So we have um, our keynotes. We've got Dr. Siegel. We've got Dr. Tina Brighton, who is an amazing teacher. Campaign, as we talk about simplifying, Campaign is the guru of simplifying. And then Jennifer Kalari, who's also just incredible. Um, she's got some amazing books. So those are our keynotes. And then we have a host of other speakers. So again, just as you were saying, Tina, it goes all weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We cover a bunch of different topics. So there's things like compassionate discipline. We have um, 
mental health for daycare providers. So there's a talk just on that. There's classroom mental health for our um, early childhood educators. There's depression, there's play, there's grief and loss, there's autism, there's living your best parent life, the highly sensitive child, the impact of technology, building emotional regulation skills in kids, the beauty of coping, as well as a host of other talks. We have wonderful people that we've contracted to give all of these presentations. Uh, and, you know, even for those people who are going, whoa, a whole weekend, I can't do Friday, Saturday, Sunday, there's no ways. Um, all of the talks are available at keynote speakers. You can watch the recordings for 30 days and then all our other speakers, they're, the presentations are available for 60 days. So if you're interested, just make your way over to uh, www.instituteofchildpsychology.com and you can click on the conference banner and all of the information will be there for you. Um, and I'll let everyone know that get your binders ready. I know they can't see this, but I went got my binder from the last conference. <laughs> Um, and print out all the handouts, get your notes ready, and honestly, have some snacks available right beside you. Get your water and your tea and what wine for the evening sessions. Uh, it is, it is actually very empowering to go to these sessions, and you have like twenty-three or twenty-four different sessions, right? Depends. Well worth it, everybody. I highly suggest it. I'm going to be registering actually today. I've been like, mm, do I want to go again? Do I? And I'm like, yep, I want to go again. <laughs> so you can join me. We can even do a chat on my Facebook site on what we're learning. I know for those that are listening, who've been our long-term listeners, we did it for the Play Summit Conference in early childcare in July. We started a group. And so for those of you, what I can do is start up a group on my Facebook book. Uh, page inspired minds ECC and we can do a whole chat around what we're learning and discussions and how it relates to early child care so thank you Tanya so much for joining me today you're so welcome to you thank you that was an absolute pleasure yeah it was a lot of fun I love that I got some new information here so I'm gonna kind of weave that into my process of learning something new and then figuring out how to help other educators with that so thanks everyone for joining today. Uh, I'm Tina from Inspired Minds ECC, and I'd love to hear back from uh, all my listeners today and get your ideas of what, what you thought about this session, um, how you're dealing with your own anxiety, as well as helping support children with anxiety. So please join me on my Facebook page, Inspired Minds ECC. And you can also check out my website, inspiredmindsecc.ca and see all the resources that are available on there as well as all of my online webinar options available for early childhood educators that is absolutely focused on you because you are important in this wonderful world that we live in and in children's lives. Thanks, Tanya. You're so welcome. Thank and you. And we'll see, uh, talk to you later, everyone. Bye.